And as much as I love telehealth therapy, when you're working with a team via phone, you don't get the same engagement in a conversation. I was an embedded therapist in a Marine unit at Camp Pendleton. And when you're embedded in a Marine unit, what that means is you do what the Marines do. Now, I'm not trying to be an old fuddy-duddy about video games. I like video games too. But like anything in life, it's you have to have things in moderation. Previous generations, even my generation, looked at TV as being a bad thing. In Chicago, I was working with kids that were in gangs. Totally different population than I'm gonna see here in Idaho. Hey everybody, this is Rachel from Cornerstone Whole Healthcare Organization, and you're listening to the Life Support Podcast, the show that covers everything healthcare, from behavioral health to substance use recovery, and much more. Today we're talking about behavioral health, telehealth, adolescent care, and push-ups with Dr. Rhodes, an expert behavioral health provider in rural eastern Idaho. So we're so excited to talk to her about the work that she does, where she's been, and how she's come to serve this community. And I also get to have a conversation with Elise, who will be co-hosting with me on and off going forward. So Elise is a fellow public health nerd, and we say that with admiration and love. And she also works at CU, not just a public health nerd. <laughs> so Elise, can you tell me a little bit more just about what you do, who you are, uh, all, all that fun stuff? Sure. First of all, personal, I have to say, because you know my husband too, and I told him we were going to be recording today. He's like, man, you and Rachel, you're the biggest nerds. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. So yes, I think we first connected on the public health level, and that's really where my professional background has been into. So I've worked in a bunch of different settings, research and healthcare systems at a state level in government. I really love working at CHU, kind of to combine different areas and flex different skills that I haven't before. But I think my passion lies in kind of really the health equity space and meeting people where they are and wherever I can incorporate behavioral science. That's a huge passion of mine as well. So super excited to lean in and talk to you and different guests as I can. And I think it's a great opportunity to kind of share the work that's being done throughout Idaho and Pacific Northwest because there's so much cool work being done incorporating public health in different settings. Awesome. Couldn't agree more. With the exception that we we did connect on public health, but you first did like the original pickup artist move, which you had a puppy at, at a cafe. <laughs> then Elise had like the cutest 10-week-old puppy at a cafe in Idaho. And we stopped and we were like, that is an adorable puppy. And then we got to talking about public health. But she she first drew me in with a very cute puppy. Well, true, because I was moving from California and I had heard you should hide your license plate when you're in Idaho because... They didn't want any more Californians coming into the state. So I thought, okay, a puppy is a way to make friends. And when we both heard, you know, each other did a bunch of public health work, we thought, okay, great. Dogs, public health, what can be better? You won't you won't care where I came from. Fantastic. Although Anthony may have to edit out the California, Colorado part because we 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 know sentiments run high. <laughs> but yeah, we're we're super excited to have Elise work with us on this. And again, you know, coming at this from the perspective of loving public health, of having personal lives that intersect with the work that we do. And so I'm so excited to share that with all you life support listeners. 
Thanks so much. And you're really excited to connect with everyone and kind of share the great work that's going on in the state and have some fun conversations. Wonderful. So Dr. Rhodes, can you please introduce yourself and for us at CWHO, what that means is name, pronouns, where you're talking to us from today. And then we like to start with what you like to do besides working and then what you do for work. I'm Dr. Susan Rhodes. My pronouns are she, her. I actually live in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Um, I work for Bingham Memorial Hospital as a licensed clinical psychologist. Let's see, on my free time, um, we like to do hiking. We like to go up to Yellowstone and hike around. I've got a dog that needs to be outside a lot. And so we spend a lot of time outside, even in the winter. I'm from Chicago, so the snow is not a big deal here in Idaho for me. And so being out in the snow is awesome. My job at Bingham is kind of interesting. I actually did my residency after I got my doctoral degree in California in prison. So I worked in the correctional system for quite some time. But my husband really wanted to retire to Idaho, which is how we got here. But working for a, the hospital at, at for Bingham Memorial Hospital is a huge um, career goal for me. I think that's the way to look at it is really a career goal. I was a nurse first. I'm still a registered nurse. And so working for a hospital was kind of right, right down my pathway. So when Bingham offered me the job to work for Bingham and all their various clinics, that was, that was like the dream job for me. So I work in Blackfoot, Pocatello and Idaho Falls because Bingham runs up the entire Eastern Idaho corridor. So we actually have clinics in all three areas, which is all really rural health. For our community, the biggest access issue is really there's, well, there's a couple things. There's limited health care, although we have, there's a couple of facil hospital facilities, there's not enough mental health providers. So be behavioral health care is really a problem, which is how we kind of got involved with the CWHO projects is being, is providing greater access to care in our area. There are community mental health providers, but the problem is their waiting lists are very long. Um, for my role at Bingham, I do primarily assessments versus therapy. I do psychiatric evaluations for planning for medication management and treatment planning. So I'm assessing for bipolar disorder, ADHD, severe mental illness. I do some therapy, but that's not the main part of my role. And in fact, there's four psychologists that work for Bingham and our roles are the same. That's how high the need is here. One of our psychologists does all neuropsych evaluations, which is for people with strokes or traumatic brain injury or dementia. So she focuses on more the neuropsych aspect. I focus more in the general psychiatric aspect. Um, we also do some other things in our area like um, bariatric evaluations and evaluations for spinal cord stimulator implant. But that means that our because our roles are so assessment-based, we don't have space in our schedules to see a lot of therapy patients. But to that end, the community also has long waiting lists for assessments too. So we're trying to fill this need in our area, and it's it's difficult to do. We hire generally social workers to do therapy. Social workers are, are generally the folks that work in the community as well, but it's hard to find them, partly because we're a rural community, and so you're really looking at the population that lives here. Recruiting outside of the community for a social worker is kind of a hard draw. You have to really want to live in a rural area in order to work here. So that's kind of the the really biggest need for, for our Eastern Idaho area. Telehealth is kind of a huge thing because our patients are all over the place and spread out like miles away. 
and coming in an hour for even an assessment is difficult for them. So telehealth has been kind of a big, um, had, had a big impact on our practices. The problem is, is people that are out in those rural communities don't always have good Wi-Fi or good cell phone service or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that makes it, although they're far away and driving is hard, it's hard in the weather, but it's also expensive as far as gas costs these days. But at the same time, they may not have adequate Wi-Fi and things in their home. So there's always this kind of trade-off for bringing them, getting them to come in or, or seeing them via telehealth. The other issue is uh, reimbursement for telehealth services is significantly less than in-person therapy or in-person assessments. And so Bingham takes a big loss whenever we do health, telehealth services. And Bingham's a not-for-profit. So money isn't the big thing, but we still have to keep the lights on. So if we do too much telehealth and that doesn't pay for our salaries or pay for our facilities or pay for the hospital services. So not that we deny telehealth, we never do, but we also have to watch how we balance those things because we still have to pay the bills. I think one of the things that we really focus on here at CHU is like the context of practice. So I just want to circle back to, you know, you've got this background working in, it sounds like the California prison system to Idaho hospital system. That's a huge shift. And Elise and I both know as people who were transplants to Idaho, we, we were from the, we were from Colorado and California when we moved. So we know that yeah, sometimes we shouldn't say those words because it's so different <laughs> in terms of community. But can you tell me a little bit more just about that transition in terms of what that meant for you personally with your work and then how that shifted in terms of the community that you serve? Well, it's kind of interesting because I did corrections in California and then I moved to Indiana for a time. I worked in corrections there, but I decided I want to try and help people before they got into the correctional system. So I started working with teenagers before they got incarcerated. I first worked with adults. Then I worked with teenagers that were incarcerated. And then I thought, well, I want to help them before they become incarcerated. Um, so I worked at a, an assessment facility outpatient. Well, they were in for 30 days, but it wasn't considered um, inpatient care necessarily. But these kids were all involved in child protective services, not because of um, child abuse, but because they were making bad decisions. And then I also worked in Chicago with the same kind of population. What I find is different here in Idaho than working in Chicago, Indiana, California, is just the issues are a little bit different. Rural communities have different problems that arise. In Chicago, I was working with kids that were in gangs. Totally different population than I'm going to see here in Idaho. Although the kids still get in trouble here for smoking marijuana or uh, breaking the law in other ways, stealing cars, breaking into buildings, like the criminal aspect here isn't really all that different. The weapons aspect is a little bit different here because in Chicago, if you have a gun, that's not like that's usually somebody who's a part of a gang. Here, people have access to weapons because they hunt. So it's kind of a different, just the culture is a little bit different when it comes to that stuff. I find here that there's a lot more sexual abuse here in Idaho. And especially in our teenage population, although I see a lot of adults that experienced it as kids and now are adults trying to deal with the, the history of sexual abuse. And it's kind of interesting to me that I didn't see nearly as much of that in California or in Chicago. And so that's an area that is, is just not managed very well here. 
Um, parents don't know what to do about it. Kids don't have the resources. There's not very many people that do therapy with teenagers. And so our population of teens that need help is way more than we actually have time to see. Unfortunately, telehealth isn't always the best for that because it's always better to be in person. And as much as I love telehealth therapy, when you're working with a teen via phone, you don't get the same engagement in a conversation. And so that's where telehealth is like, it's kind of good and bad. There's a balance in there that we're having a difficult time meeting. But the culture here is just so, so, so different. And I think it's the rural aspect. It's There's a lot more farming here. People are a lot more isolated. Um, teenagers don't necessarily have the support system here because their parents are so busy working. They're so busy out on the farm doing their job to put food on the table that I think there's some things that just get lost. Now, that's not to say that parents are perfect in other areas. I don't mean that at all. But I'm just saying that the reasons for the struggles here are just different. Along those lines, and thinking, Dr. Rhodes, it's it's really, I think, the challenge with telehealth is there's all different populations and everyone kind of uh, receives services in different ways. And so it seems like you have such an interesting background. I think Rachel and I could geek out with you for hours, but I know you're a busy person, both being in public health and working in more like research and hospital settings. Doing a little prep for our talk today, I saw May's issue of JAMA and I saw some startling statistics I feel like would resonate with you. And I'm sure, you know, it's things that you see all the time. So I saw that between 2011 to 2020, the percentage of pediatric ED visits attributed to mental health had risen from like 7.7 to 13.1. So I think ultimately that's like a five-fold increase in suicide-related pediatric ED visits. And kind of thinking about some of the different things you've seen working with youth, youth and telehealth, how can you see or how have you worked kind of in those spaces in the past? And have you delved into the, the space of suicide? I'm not trying to be negative about technology. I love technology. I love my computer. I'm not a person who handwrites everything. However, video gaming became a really big thing during this period of time and then exploded during COVID when kids were home from school. And video games are designed to create a dopamine response. And so a lot of times these kids are sitting at home on video games for hours and hours and hours and less time outside playing. Now, I'm not trying to be an old fuddy-duddy about video games. I like video games too. But like anything in life, it's you have to have things in moderation. Previous generations, even my generation, looked at TV as being a bad thing because my family was the first family to have a TV in our block. I'm that old. People in my neighborhood didn't have TV, and it genuinely had a clicker, like the remote control clicked, which is why we call it a clicker, right? I'm that old. So I'm not trying to be negative against technology and the things that have changed. But I think part of that is our culture has changed and how we draw people in. Advertising and things have always had a psychology background. You're looking at your target market. You're looking at how you draw people in to purchase your product. Well, the same thing happens with video games and social media and all those things that kids are exposed to now. And I'm not by any means saying, well, back in my day... But to the same token, those social media and video games are designed to draw people in. And unfortunately, it pulls on their dopamine response and their serotonin levels and those sorts of things that just their brain activity. And the, the problem is, is it's making kids more depressed. 
And parents have gotten to be so busy working to put food on the table. There's so many households that are two parent households or two working parent households that video games kind of become a babysitter. It it allows parents to have some downtime by saying, just go play some video games. But when you're allowing kids to do that for hours and hours and hours, then that creates a, a depressive state for them a lot of times. I also do disability evaluations for the state of Idaho. And I can't tell you how many 20-year-olds I see that are applying for state disability and they're living in mom's basement playing video games and they're depressed and they're genuinely depressed, but they don't see the connection between what their daily activities are and what's causing their depression. I'm also not against smoking marijuana, although it's illegal in Idaho, but they're sitting in the basement smoking weed, playing video games in mom's basement. That's just not life. That's not real life. And they're not getting out and socializing in the world and face-to-face connections and those kinds of things. And I think that that's adding to that, those issues for this particular generation of kids. Do you think having kind of different modalities for behavioral health services, like I know that there's, you know, true telehealth platforms connected to health systems versus just app-based now that have come out through the course of COVID, what are your kind of thoughts on how those might help. If a teenager is already connected to all their devices, do you think that's a good way in? Or do you think that just proves to be more challenging? They need to kind of get out and you want to get them with peers in a live in-person setting. Well, I I think it's a balance because like I said, I'm not against technology. And and I've actually investigated some of these programs like BetterHelp and Doctor on Demand and some of the telehealth programs. Like BetterHelp in particular, there's a lot of messaging that goes on. And that actually is kind of good for sort of a younger population, maybe a little bit of the older population too, depending on how tech savvy they are. In my household, my husband and my son are both IT guys. So although I'm a lot older, I don't have any problem with technology, but a lot of people in my age group, I'm 65, by the way, a lot of people in my age group, technology is too much for them. They just can't handle it. So there, there's that with telehealth. Can I handle getting set up on it? And even messaging doesn't make sense for them. Versus the kids can message back and forth faster than than you can say words. Sometimes they type so fast. So I don't know that it's not okay. It's a good way to communicate because it's a level that they understand. But by the same token, face-to-face interaction is also what they're missing. So I think a balance of both is better. Back to moderation and everything. I will say that telehealth is kind of interesting because you get a view into people's worlds that you don't have sitting in your office. Because if they're sitting in their car, you see the inside of their car. If you're sitting in their bedroom, you see their bedroom. And it gives you a view into their world that you don't necessarily get in person. And so that good or bad adds a different perspective. Like I see teenagers via telehealth sometimes and I can see what a disaster their bedroom is. And we'll talk about, hey, how about picking the clothes up off your floor so that your room is more organized? When your room is more organized, your brain is more organized. And we can have conversations about the environment that they're in. And I wouldn't get that same view if they were sitting in my office. I I feel personally connected to that statement because if Anthony doesn't blur this out, there's definitely uh, some open drawers, unmade bed behind me. And no, but I but I think that that's great. I mean, you <clears throat> can see people in their own context. One one thought that I have is, you know, we talk about this increase in accessing services or requests for services. 
what do you what part of that do you think is around increased like acuity severity of mental health needs in the community versus like increased literacy, decreased stigma around mental health? Because it seems like those two things are kind of walking together. What what are your observations in your community? Well, doing therapy at home from your computer or your phone, you lack some privacy, right? If you come into my office, we're talking and no one can hear you versus your family knowing what's going on. So there's kind of a a rub either way. Sometimes that's good that your family knows you're doing therapy and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you want to have the privacy of I'm in therapy and no one knows what's going on. So that's a little bit of a challenge. I I think access is great. And I know that who also works with the library system where they're creating some private rooms for clients to go into and have a private session in the local library, which is awesome. It would be great if we could get our whole library system on board for that because libraries aren't used the same as they used to be because of technology, right? We all read books online or Google things or Audible. We don't necessarily go to the library for books. So library spaces aren't used the same as they used to be. So I think expanding the program to the libraries where people could have privacy and be out of their house. Because the other piece about telehealth though, is if you're in crisis and you're stuck in your home, sometimes the thing you need to do is get out of your house. And so maybe going to the library is an alternative to driving an hour to see a therapist, but it still gets you out of your house. So I think we kind of have to look at things from lots of different angles for people. I see a lot of people in their cars and you can get Wi-Fi if you go to the local police station. So you can sit in your car, get kind of steal the Wi-Fi from the police station and have a therapy visit. But then you also have some paranoia around they think the police can hear your call. So it's education, it's people understanding how Wi-Fi works and sometimes explaining how technology works and what their options are. It's a constant psychoeducation process. To that end, though, I want to swing back to your question about crisis. Seeing somebody in crisis and at least they can get into me, boom, like that, super fast via telehealth. If they're in crisis, that's a great thing. But at the same time, that's also a, a liability. Because if someone is genuinely suicidal and I don't have them in my office, I have less ability to do things for them. I can call 911 and get services out to them, but it's not the same kind of help that I can give them if they're in my office and in crisis. And so it's it's like anything else. It's You have to look at the, the risks and benefits. Along those same lines, Dr. Rodz, I know you've worked in a bunch of different settings and you're talking about meeting people where they are. What have you seen or do you have some big ideas for meeting people where they are in terms of kind of the rural communities? You know, there's people working on farms and they might work several days of the week, every day of the week, and their kids might participate in this as well. Have you seen kind of any interesting angles? Are you working on anything kind of focused on meeting people where they are? What I would like to do, but cannot just for the record because of malpractice insurance is actually see them where they are. So one of my internships that I did in California was in Santa Cruz. We did, I worked with dual diagnosis, mentally ill folks. I'm homeless. So dual diagnosis, severe mental illness, and usually substance use. And it, it was through the county mental health system. And I actually did therapy on the beach or in a coffee shop or walking down the sidewalk. So we were embedded in the community, which is exactly seeing people where they were. 
Now, we were working with people with psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and usually substance use issues. But the community supported us in seeing them wherever they are. And that was amazing because they didn't have to travel. It wasn't a technology issue. And you can actually do really good therapy going for a walk. To that and also just my history was I was an embedded therapist in the Marine unit at Camp Pendleton. And when you're embedded in a Marine unit, what that means is you do what the Marines do. And I'm a lot older than Marines, but I went on all their marches. I did all the pull-ups. I did all the sit-ups. I did all the runs, but because it was primarily men, although there were some women in this unit, but I was just part of the unit. I was where they are. So if we were doing a walk or a hike or whatever, I would be in the back because I'm old and slow and purpose. I would be old and slow. But whoever wanted to talk to me, be like, hey, I'm going to hang back and talk to Dr. Rhodes. And the commander knew that they just needed some time with me alone. And so we did a lot of therapy, walking side by side, bringing up the back end of the group. So there's really good stuff that can be done from that perspective. And if there was a way for us to be able to be out in the community, go out to the farms, go out to Spudnik or, or any of the potato factories and actually talk to people where they are. I think that's super effective, but our malpractice insurance here doesn't allow us to do that. I love that observation around meeting people where they are and looking at some of those models, but then kind of molding them, tailoring them to the community where you are. Um, and my other takeaway from that is not to mess with you. Apparently you're a trained Marine. Um, so <laughs> we'll announce that publicly. We, we can't mess with Dr. Rhodes, but I'm not a good Marine. Trust me, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, more training than any of us here. It's <laughs> impressive regardless. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, we so value your time, Dr. Rhodes, and we know that there's patients that need to see you and a lot on your plate, but is there anything else that you want to share with us before we close out the conversation for today? I think from my perspective, I really appreciate all the stuff that See Who is doing. Because these are the projects that you guys are involved in are things that I don't have time to do because I'm busy seeing patients. Um, I do a lot of community education, but I don't get to do all the things that you do. And, and you bring resources to us so that we can figure out what works for our particular community. And I just want you guys to know how much I appreciate all the efforts that who puts into getting services to our rural areas because it's things that I cannot do on my own. Well, it's it's a team effort and it's driven by the dedicated providers and community members that <clears throat> are doing the work. So we just want to say thank you to you for your time and what you do um, and just for taking the time to share with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're a superhero in your own right. I know sometimes uh, the work of you know public health and mental health is uh, not the sexiest thing, but I think you are doing uh, such amazing work and highlighted by your experiences and what you're bringing to Idaho. So proud to say, you know, Idaho has a provider like you that we can glean all this great insight from. Especially one that could probably beat us in a push-up contest. Now we know. Uh, <laughs> Definitely one that could beat us in a push-up contest. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that anymore, <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. I'm also going to be dreaming the rest of the day of like a therapy session where I could be like, in the foothills hiking my dog or something. That would just be so cool. <laughs> I got to tell you, it is the best. Sitting in an office is not my style, so I'm kind of struggling with that part a little. Yeah. 
again. Sounds like for you and your dog, start needing to do some Yellowstone sessions, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So that wraps up another great episode of Life Support. Thanks again to Dr. Susan Rhodes for speaking with us. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to help spread important information like this to more people, you can like, comment, and share this video. And if you don't want to miss out on more episodes like this, remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Uh, You can even leave a comment with any ideas for future topics. Until next time, remember to help each other with a little life support. Life Support is a podcast brought to you by Cornerstone Whole Healthcare Organization with funding from a variety of grants and sponsors. It is hosted by me, Rachel, and Elise, and produced and edited by Anthony Leon. See the show notes for more details. Thanks, everyone.